Good morning, Christ City. This morning, as we jump into our text, I'm wondering who can you and I look to in order to find out how we are to live truly human lives? Who can be a sufficient role model for you and I to know how to live a true and human life? I think one of the problems today that we bump up against over and over and over again in our culture is that all the role models we thought we had, as we do a little digging, we find all of these compromising things about them, and one falls and the other falls and the other one falls and we're left disappointed. This is true for our contemporary heroes. It's true for our historical heroes, certainly. It's also true for our Christian heroes. You look back in the church, it's not difficult to see uh, so many of our heroes had compromising things about their lives. And it's true for you and I, too, probably, as you've gotten older, where you realized uh, that family hero that you had, say it was a father or a grandmother or a grandfather or an uncle or an aunt, and you looked up to them your whole life. But then as you grew and as you matured and as you uh, grew to know more of the family story, you saw that there was all kinds of compromise and problems in even their lives that disappointed you. Now, none of this is surprising given the narrative of Scripture. The story of the Bible is that you and I as human beings were made in the image of God, but that when God created us, he, he did say of us that we are good, that he was pleased with his good creation. But mankind, humankind, has sinned, and this sin has spread throughout all of humanity. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that every time we seek to find a human hero, that we're left disappointed. Because no matter how good they look, we scratch the surface and we see that they too are corrupted by sin, and we are left disappointed. But not Jesus. Jesus will not disappoint us. The good news about Jesus is that in Jesus, we have a Savior who is like us in every way. A Savior who is truly human. But a Savior who has none of that sin stuff. A Savior who has no fault. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. That he became fully and completely human. And Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as you and I are. He's faced all that we face in our lives, and yet he is without sin. Well, in this sermon series, we've been on this journey of looking at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we've begun by considering him in his heights and in his exaltation. And just last Sunday, we began to to dip down in the incarnation to look at Jesus taking on humanity, becoming human. And now this sermon and a couple of the the subsequent ones to follow, we're going to be now down deep in the earthiness of Jesus and who he is as a fully human being. Today we're going to be looking at who Jesus is in his human life. And here's my hope, here's my prayer in this message. I'm praying that you will see in Jesus, that Christ said that you will see in him what it means to truly be human. I'm praying that you'll begin to hope in this Jesus as a Savior who perfectly understands you. Who perfectly gets you and is committed to shaping you and changing you and transforming you so you don't have to be mired in sin and corrupted humanity any longer but grown and birthed into his life. So we're going to look at 
all of this this morning, and I want to show you really just two points. And the first one is going to be long, and the second one will be short. The first point is just this. Jesus had a real human life. We want to look at that and consider what it means for him to have a real human life. And second, we're going to look at the way that Jesus lived that human life in perfect obedience to his Father. So first point, Jesus had a real, a full, real human life. And we could spend a lot of time discussing this. We could spend a whole series of sermons discussing the life of Jesus. There's a lot to this idea. But I just want to spend the next 15 minutes or so discussing uh, three things with you about his real human life. And the first thing we need to, to look at as we consider that he had a real human life was that Jesus, that we often don't think about it, that Jesus grew up just like you and I. There's a reason that we don't think about that very often, and one of the obvious ones is that in the gospel narratives, we have the Christmas story, the narrative of Jesus' birth, and we have a very long gap, and then we have the narrative of the end of his life, his ministry years going to his crucifixion and his resurrection. But there's probably another reason that we don't think about the childhood or the growing up of Jesus uh, beyond this. I think in some ways it's made us uncomfortable in the history of the church to think of a savior A Savior who spit up and who cried in the night. A Savior who threw his food on the floor as a child. But the reality is that the Bible does teach us, though it doesn't tell us a lot about it, it does teach us that Jesus, between the Christmas narrative and the crucifixion, that he did grow up. In fact, two verses that speak about this, though certainly uh, very briefly, are Luke chapter 2 verse 40 and also Luke 2 verse 52. And Luke writes this, he says, And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus, in verse 52, he increased. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And I know this is hard for us to understand. We start looking at the humanity of Jesus and wondering how is it that Jesus can both be God on the one hand and human on the other hand? How can he experience growth if he's fully God? This is difficult to understand. It's difficult to to wrestle with the idea that Jesus has two natures. He's fully divine and he's fully human, but that the person of Jesus Christ, the person of the Son, uh, unites those two natures joined in one person. It's a difficult thing to comprehend. In some ways, he's obviously unlike us because his teaching would imply that even though Jesus uh, cried in the night as an infant, that he was simultaneously in his uh, divine nature upholding the stars in every galaxy uh, in the sky. But at the same time, Jesus is like us in his humanity because in the incarnation, the Bible teaches that the person of Jesus, God the Son, that he came down, he condescended to us, adding humanity to his deity and becoming human. Then his human experience is like ours. He became fully human like you and I are. There's a lot to talk about and to unpack here. We're not going to go into all of it right now. And I will be the one to say, the first one to say, that this is mysterious. These are difficult things to comprehend, but we do want to, Christ, we do want to do justice as much as we are able to the full scope of what the Bible teaches about Jesus being God and being fully man. That one person, two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. 
And we're going to jump now and look, what does it mean then for in his human nature to be growing up as a human being? Just think about the mystery and the glory of who Jesus is in his humanity. This means that, that Jesus, who is God in his humanity, he came to earth and in his humanity he had to learn. For the first time when Jesus was born a child, he did not know everything. He had to learn things. Matthew 24, verse 36 even says, Jesus even says that that the Father knows the day and the hour of his coming judgment, but the Son does not know it. According to Jesus' humanity, he had first words. He had to learn to express his desires to his earthly parents. According to his humanity, he grew up and he had to come in contact with the Bible and begin to memorize Scripture. According to his humanity, Jesus had to learn in that scripture, reading about the story of God, led along by the Holy Spirit who was deeply present in Jesus' life, led along to realize that he was the Messiah, that he was the one that all of these prophecies were talking about, who must live a perfect life and die a death for sinners to reconcile sinful humanity to God. Though Jesus was God most high, He profoundly humbled himself. He went through childhood and puberty and adolescence and grew in maturity as a human being. He learned to make friends. He obeyed his earthly parents who he had previously given life to as their God. Luke 2.51 says, And Jesus went down with them, his parents, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. See, Jesus shows us a picture of God, the creator of all, who learned to trade from his earthly father, Joseph. God, the only omnipotent being, was born weak and had to grow strong in strength. And the second thing that we see, though, when we look at Jesus' humanity, the second thing I want to show you wasn't just that he had to grow up, but was that he was fully human. He was really human in that he had a physical body, just like you and I. Now, for the early church, for the first Christians, this was a very, very hard thing for them to get their heads around because they're very influenced by Platonic thought. There's this idea that matter was evil, but that the spiritual was good. So how can Jesus really be fully human if that meant that God would come down to earth and take on this full physical humanity? But I think it's not, it's not just them who wrestled with this either. Uh, I think that you and I sometimes wrestle with this and have a little bit of that implicit thought and wonder, no, 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 it's too much for God to become man. I think we can be a little bit prudish with Jesus' humanity. We want to back up and say, no, he wasn't that gritty, wasn't that really human. We want to tone him down and clean him up a little bit. But the Bible is clear, and actually even John, in 1 John 4, 2, he warned that you must not You must not doubt Jesus' full humanity. He said in this passage in 1 John 4, to every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess, the implication does not confess that he's come in the flesh, is not from God. He warns explicitly about denying that Jesus was fully human. The Bible is clear. Our humanity, this is good news for us, our humanity wasn't beneath Jesus to fully participate in. Let's think about that for a moment. He was born the normal physical way. 
with normal physical blood and all the physical mess in a young infant, uh, fresh out of the womb, physical body. He was a normal physical infant. He was a, the digestive tract was developing, spit up, and cried with acid reflux at night. He was normal in his physicalness in that he tasted and he touched and he smelled and he enjoyed the good things of this world like you and I do. He worked hard with a physical body and became tired. He even slept on a fishing boat one evening in Galilee during a storm because he was so exhausted. God in human flesh exhausted. He got slivers at work. He stubbed his toes. He sprained his ankles. This Jesus who had only known perfect fulfillment and satisfaction in a loving relationship for all of eternity past with Father and with Spirit. This Jesus, always perfectly satisfied, now knew what it meant not to be satisfied. To experience lack. He became hungry and tired and sick. And he had a fully operational human sexuality that he submitted perfectly to the Father. He experienced all of what it means to be embodied, but without sinning at any time and in any way. And more than this, in his physical body, like you and I do, he suffered. And yet more than you and I, he suffered more and worse. He experienced pain and cruelty, and torture. And on the cross, he even gasped his last breaths. You see, Jesus even knows as far as it is possible for God who cannot die to know what it's like to die human death. God knows. In the person of Jesus Christ, he knows what it means to die a human death as someone who has experienced it. There's more here. The third thing I want to show you about Jesus' true and real humanity is that he was fully human and that he had a real and complex and full set of human emotions and feelings. And this is really good news for us. I think it's also a corrective for us because so oftentimes, I think as human beings, we're afraid of the messiness of emotions. We find ways to just shut them down, to bottle them up, to bury them down deep. Sometimes we idealize what it would be like to be a Vulcan-like robot that only uses our reason and isn't swayed by the messiness of emotions in our lives. But is this an ideal for humanity? It's not. This is not what perfect humanity looks like. Because in Jesus, we see the perfect human who was not detached from his emotions, who was not separated from his emotions, but who experienced a full set of human emotions. And we see some of these in John chapter 11, verses 32 to 36. And in that text, we read this story. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. And the scene here is that Jesus has arrived at the family home of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. 
And Lazarus has just died. These are very, very dear friends of Jesus. And he enters the room at the time of the mourning and the crisis and the grief. And Jesus, it says in verse 33, was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled as he entered that room. But what's not very clear in this passage in English is that the Greek word that John uses to to say that, that phrase that he was greatly troubled It's actually used everywhere in Greek writing at the time of Jesus, not to express uh, sorrow, but actually to express anger. It's as if Jesus' nostrils flare and he becomes righteously indignant as he learns and talks and discusses about the death of Lazarus. But what was he angry about? Jesus was angry about death itself. He was angry about sin and evil, but unbelief about all that is wrong with this world. You see, you and I feel anger in our lives too, but so often our anger is sinful and swings out of control. We're angry so often not at evil so much as at things not going the way that we wanted them to. We get frustrated and upset and angry that things don't work out in our favor. At least that's often what happens. But even on those somewhat rare times when we're genuinely righteously angry at things that are wrong in this world, our anger is tepid compared to the anger of Jesus. See, Jesus' anger is perfect anger toward all that is wrong in this world. He feels anger towards evil, not less than you and I, but more than you and I. This makes sense because Jesus is a morally perfect being, a being full of love who delights in his creation. And as such, he must uh, react so strongly, more strongly than you and I, when things are done wrong to that creation and in that creation. He responds more strongly towards evil than you and I. Sort of the picture of the parent who loves his or her daughter most deeply who is most angry when she has been intentionally hurt. So Jesus reacts in anger to what's wrong with death and evil. But at the same time, and this is incredible, at the same time that Jesus experiences this strong anger, there's more going on in him. At the same time that he experiences this strong anger in John 11, he also feels deep, deep compassion and grief passage says that he sees all that's going on and he weeps tears of sorrow and compassion and grief see christ city in our emotions you and i can sin on the one hand by overreacting emotionally i mean we know really well what that's like but something that we're less aware of is that we can also sin by underreacting in our emotional lives I remember being at a a funeral for a child who died of AIDS when I was 17 years old in Zambia, in Africa. And we went to this funeral. It was a a graveside funeral. I witnessed the family weeping, uh, the full scope of the sorrow and the tragedy of that moment. I remember driving back to the orphanage where we were staying in the back of a pickup truck and just not being very troubled by it. I mean, sure, I had a a sort of pity, I think, for, for those around, but not a depth of grief. And I was aware of that, that lack of grief and compassion, and that troubled me. But Jesus is different than you and I. He never underreacts with his compassion. Never. 
See, he feels perfect and deep compassion and empathy for all who suffer in sin and death. Jesus feels that for you and I in our suffering. He's compassionate to you and I in fullness. So at the situation with the death of Lazarus, Jesus has this display of anger, but also of incredible compassion in a a perfect way. But there's more to Jesus' emotions. There's far more we could talk about. He experienced the full scope of human joy and laughter and delight and friendship and all that goes with those positive things. But I do want to draw attention to one more emotion. And it's different. It's the emotion of anxiety. See, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus waited to be betrayed, he knew what was going to come. And he knew that he was going to be beaten, that he'd be whipped till the flesh on his back and his legs was shredded. He knew that he would be nailed through wrists and ankles to a wooden cross, and he knew that he would slowly be suffocated to death. And he knew, too, that beyond physical suffering, he was about to experience the punishment of God's almighty judgment against sin poured out on his shoulders. He knew that he'd come to earth to die, to have his blood shed, to bear the weight of the punishment of sin that you and I deserve in order that we could be forgiven, in order that God could reconcile us and draw us forgiven and washed clean into a relationship with himself. And as Jesus anticipated all of these incredible horrors, he prayed. He prayed in Luke chapter 22, verses 42 to 44. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Take it away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then verse 44 says this, that being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I know that you've never had such anxiety and fear that you sweated drops of blood. But you and I have anxiety. And Philippians 4 verse 6 says that you and I sin in our anxiety when we neglect to bring those feelings and those fears and those concerns before God in prayer. But Jesus, who had far greater anxiety, far greater reason for anxiety than you and I ever would, he didn't sin. He perfectly, in that moment, brought all of his emotions to the Father in prayer and submitted himself to the Father's will, entrusting himself to the hands of the Father who loved him. Here's the good news, Christ. Because he did, he is able to help people like you and I who also get anxious. There's so much more that we could say here. But as we come to our second point to look at the obedient life of Jesus, I hope that you at least see enough from the Bible to realize that Jesus was fully and shockingly human in ways that you and I often don't think about. But importantly, we need to, know, we need to look now to see the way that he used that humanity, that he used it so much differently than you and I did. You see, where you and I live full human lives, we live them disordered and corrupted, out of relationship with God and in disobedience to him. But not Jesus, as Jesus was a perfectly obedient son before his father. Just look at what he says in John 8, verse 29. Jesus says, And he who sent me is with me. The Father is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
You see, Jesus loved the Lord his God. He loved his Father with all of his heart, all of his soul, and all of his mind. And out of that love for his Father and obedience to his Father because of it, he also loved his neighbor as himself. Let's be real. I don't do that, and neither do you. See, my desires are so incredibly self-centered, not obedient, and full of love for God and God-centered. They're self-centered. And in my selfishness and my self-love, what I do is I constantly distort my humanity and try and pull this whole world and bring it in to make it about myself. And in doing so, I hurt others. I do it as a parent. I worry about this. As a parent, I hurt my children because I make my children about me. I make my goals for parenting about me and not just for their good. As a pastor, I do that too with this church. I can make my job about me. I can serve in the church and make all of you somehow about me, turning inwards towards myself. And man, even this last week when I was on vacation, I made my vacation about me, turning it inward disobediently to God to make it all about me. And when things didn't meet up to the expectations that I wanted, I became grumpy. And I was a poor father, and I was a pretty bad husband. But the selfish disobedience towards God that all of us feel it hurts all those around us. It distorts our humanity. But consider by contrast Jesus. He was satisfied in the perfect love of his Father. And because of that, his entire life was joyfully lived in obedience to God. He was satisfied in the love of the Father, so he didn't have to seek satisfaction and try to squeeze satisfaction out of his children. He didn't have children, but if he did, out of his children or out of the people around him and use them for himself. No, out of his satisfaction and love and obedience to the Father, he was enabled to treat everyone around him, not for his own selfish fulfillment, but to serve them for their good and for the glory of his Father who is in heaven. He fulfilled what it means to be truly human in that way. And because of his perfect obedience, because of that love, he received from God blessing and honor and glory and reward and exaltation. Look at Philippians 2 verses 8 to 9. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that obedience, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Christ City, in conclusion, I want you to see why this is good news. It's good news for at least three reasons. See, Jesus' obedient, full human life is good news for you because it means that you don't serve a distant Savior King who doesn't get you. You serve a loving Savior King who is committed to you, who's committed to you in love and mercy, who gets you and who desires your growth. Second, Jesus' obedient humanity is good news because it means that Jesus 
generously and freely can give you the rewards of his own obedience that you could never earn. See, only Jesus received the reward from the Father that is given to an obedient human son. But the goodness of the gospel is that Jesus freely gives that to us while taking upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin, for our selfishness, for the way that we hurt others and sin against God. So Christ said, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that this week, when yet again you have a terrible day, when you're uncovering layers of selfishness and sin in your heart that you are surprised are still there, and you're discouraged and feeling condemned, I want you to remember Jesus' obedient life lived for you. You are loved and accepted and treasured because of his obedient life for you. And that will never change. And third, this is good news for us because Jesus' perfect, obedient human life, it means and it shows us that God is a God who's committed to our transformation. You see, God doesn't just set up an example in Jesus of something that we have to try to live up to again and again and again, but always fail. No, in Jesus, we know that that the life of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit of Jesus, is given to us in a miracle of salvation, that we're born again in Jesus to a living hope, that his Spirit comes upon us, transforming us to become like him. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 18 say this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation created to be like Jesus with the life of Jesus throbbing within us and making us new little by little, moment by moment, drawing us toward his perfection. And one day we will see him, Christ City, face to face and we will be changed to be like him perfectly and completely. Christ City, Jesus' humanity is a template for for true humanity. Jesus' humanity, his real human life, is hope for us in our human lives, plagued by sin and death. Christy, let's pray then. Let's give ourselves to prayer, to cry out to God that by his Holy Spirit, he would work the life of Jesus within us as we see him and love him and are changed from one degree of glory to another as we look at him.